This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. First, we start with $5 hot dogs at BC Place Stadium. Hallelujah. This sounds awesome, right? Five bucks for a hot dog at BC Place. You got to love that. This is part of their new $5 menu. Now, you have to read the fine print, though. Will it be difficult to get one of these hot dogs in BC Place, especially if the place is packed? Let's have a listen to Global News anchor Paul Hasem here. Well, a night out at BC Place is getting just a little more affordable. Five bucks, five bucks, five bucks. The venue announcing a new $5 menu. That's going to include hot dogs, nachos, popcorn, and beer, with the potential for rotating items throughout the year. There's a bit of a catch, though. The $5 items will only be available at Dawson's Hot Dog Stands in two sections, so you can expect some pretty significant lineups there. Okay, yeah, taking a look at the news release here from BC Place. So the $5 hot dogs will be available at sections 201 and section 227. Dawson's Hot Dogs. Now... Uh, just taking a look at the map of BC Place Stadium, there are like 50 sections in the lower bowl alone here. So you will have to hoof it around to the end of the stadium here to these sections and, and go to one of these hot dog places to get your $5 dog. Maybe that'll be worth it. But hey, if that place is jam-packed and they're selling $5 hot dogs, $5 beers, how long will the line be? Now just checking out... The regular prices for hot dogs at Dawson's Hot Dogs outlets in the stadium, a foot-long hot dog supreme is $13.75. So, you know, people, if you don't want to stand that line, you might have to pay significantly more for your hot dog. Is this a gimmick? What is this? How long will people have to stand in line to get it? Why don't you make a $5 hot dog to the whole stadium? Why is it just not in, why is it just in two sections? We did ask for BC Place to come on this morning and talk about this. Nobody available. And I sent a bunch of questions over there this morning about some of the details of, of this, this promotion, and they did not respond. So, hey, and they're busy over there, right? Let's check in with Carson Binda now, BC Director, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Hey, Carson. Hey, Mike. Thanks so much for having me on this morning. How, how long would you line up for a, hot, a $5 hot dog? Well, it would need to be one darn good hot dog to have me lining up as long as the lines will be at those two vendors in BC Place. Look, it's a nice change that two of the vendors will be selling hot dogs for $5. But the real question is, why are taxpayers still on the hook for BC Pavilion Corps when the business community and local entrepreneurs, they want to get on board? Yeah, for sure. Well, we'll get into that because there's been a lot of speculation about the future of BC Play Stadium. Hey, a $5 hot dog, a $5 beer, well, that sounds pretty darn good. But again, 
they will be, it'd be, it sounds like it'd be limited supply. Like taking a look at the price list of BC Play Stadium right now, a 24 ounce beer. So that's a big one. Okay. So the big 24 ounce beer is $18 and 25 cents. So you are paying the big bucks. I mean, pretty much any stadium you go to, you're going to pay a lot for your food and beverage. But we'd like to get some more information on the $5 hot dog. So a BC Place, you want to get back to me and be a guest on the show, um, that would be great. Let's talk about BC Place Stadium, Carson, owned by the provincial government through a Crown Corporation. Is this good value for taxpayers, in your opinion, to own a stadium? No, it's horrible value for BC taxpayers. And look, we all know that taxpayers in BC have it rough right now. One in five Canadians are skipping meals to make ends meet, and EB's government's making things even harder by racking up massive debts on the taxpayer credit card in budget 2023. Look, times are tough, and the province should sell the stadium, or at the very least, its naming rights, to help provide some tax relief that we all need right now. Okay, so you think they should just get out of the business of running a stadium, which is sell it to the private sector? Yeah, look, local entrepreneurs, local businesses can and should be doing a better job of running BC Place than taxpayers are right now. Okay, and as for the naming rights, so this is an interesting issue because there had been efforts in the past to rename the stadium with a corporate sponsor. So there was a deal several years ago, tentative deal with TELUS, to rename BC Place and probably rename it TELUS Park. And it was like a $40 million deal, you know, taxpayers, I guess we get some value back in that deal. The whole thing fell apart. Let's go back in time here, Carson. You'll hear Spencer Chandra Herbert here, NDP MLA in opposition at the time, and the then Premier of the province, Christy Clark. Let's listen. They've decided to uh, throw all of that work uh, down the toilet uh, after telling TELUS uh, very strongly that they were uh, going ahead. We have responsibility to get the best deal that we can, not just get any deal. And uh, this wasn't the best deal. Okay, so they said this was not the best deal. I don't know, 40 million bucks, cash in your claw. Uh, would that, does that sound like a good deal to you, Carson? That deal made a lot of sense. The government chickened out, though, and left us on the hook for it. Why they did that makes no sense at all. $40 million is a heck of a lot better than nothing, which is what we got for it instead. Okay, BC Place officials this week's indicating that it's unlikely that they'll make any move to rename the stadium or sell the naming rights to the stadium anytime soon. Uh, that deal with TELUS went away a few, several years ago. Um, do you think anyone out there cares about the name? Like I, I have heard people complain, well, we don't want the stadium with some corporate logo on it. But do you think most people care about the name of the stadium? Look, selling the naming rights is an easy way for BC Place to start making money. It's the last big stadium north of the Mexico border without a naming sponsor. So uh, bearing that in mind, look, folks all across the country, all across Canada, all across the U.S. have corporate sponsors for their stadiums. For BC Place to be the only outlier north of Mexico, that's a head shaker. Okay, get set to call me on that. I'd be interested to know what the listeners think on that one. Let's uh, quickly, Carson, talk about one of the big, big events coming to BC Place. Of course, it's the uh, World Cup of Soccer. So BC, Vancouver, one of the host cities for the World Cup. Let's listen to Chris May here, the general manager of BC Place, about getting ready for the World Cup. It will include installing a natural grass surface in BC Place Stadium. Let's listen. 
We know that we'll need to put a, a watering system in, a lighting system in, and, and then bring in the real grass. But right now, FIFA is working through exactly how do they make that happen? How do they make that happen consistently across 16 stadiums in different climates in three different countries? Carson, do you think the World Cup is a good deal for BC taxpayers? Taxpayers are being skinned alive when it comes to the World Cup. Look, the province says it's going to cost taxpayers about $260 million. That's a huge amount of money for us to host a few international soccer games. Right now, we're only scheduled to host five. FIFA said we could potentially be in line for more, but only five are confirmed right now. That means that every minute, every single minute of playtime is going to leave taxpayers on the hook for more than half a million dollars. Who wants to spend half a million dollars when Canadians can't afford to put food on their table right now? Well, well, I imagine that Vancouver will get more games here because FIFA has announced that they are expanding the tournament yet again. So that means more games, more countries competing. So I'll be surprised if we don't get more than five. But you still think even if we get more than five games, you still think it's a bad deal? Yeah. Even with, even if we get, you know, six games, potentially, if we're really lucky or really unlucky, as the case may be, we yeah. might get seven. But we're not looking at a huge number of more games. Uh, and it still what? will cost taxpayers about half a million dollars a minute due to the increased security costs and increased what about logistics the, costs of those further what about, games. What about the tourism uh, hit, the tourism injection here? I mean, you're going to have people from around the world coming to Vancouver. It's a good thing, right? Yeah, you know, you think. But let's look at the math. I mean, Toronto is also hosting probably the same number of games as Vancouver. And they're saying that they might not actually be able to turn a dime off this. Montreal, uh, they put their name forward as a host city, and they withdrew altogether because they saw that they couldn't make a dime off it. So we've got a lot of questions for the provincial government about how much revenue they actually think will uh, will be generated from this. And we've filed a flurry of FOI requests back and had almost everything redacted by the provincial government. They won't come clean with taxpayers about how much money they think this is going to bring in. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Oh, man, it's nice to see the weather getting a little nicer here. Lots of people itching to get outside, enjoy the natural beauty of our province. How about this? Let's go camping. Or how about a hike in a provincial park? Great idea. Now, you may have heard about the difficulties in reserving a campsite online. The government continues to improve 
the online reservation system. And check out this announcement yesterday from the province. The government spending $3.9 million here over the next three years to improve accessibility in BC provincial parks. It will include upgrades to washrooms, parking lots, and trails in the parks. I got Sam Waddington standing by to discuss. Have a listen to BC's Environment Minister here, George Heyman, talking yesterday. We will continue to break down barriers that prevent some of our neighbors from experiencing the natural beauty, the peace, the spirituality that's available to those of us who are able to easily come to a BC park and enjoy it. Let's discuss now with my guest, Sam Waddington. Sam is the owner of Mount Waddington's Outdoors in Chilliwack, and he's our go-to expert on BC's parks. Hey, Sam, thanks for coming on. Always a pleasure. Sam, what do you think of this announcement, improving accessibility in BC parks? Is this needed? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I really I really do think it is. Um, you know, any any park user in British Columbia who loves getting out in our outdoor spaces, um you know, if they if they observe the campgrounds and the trails that they're on with a critical eye, they'd realize that the trails and the diversity you see and the people using them does not really reflect um, the diversity we see in our province and in urban spaces and, and in our communities. And um, and that you know shows that there's this there's this gap in in either perceived or real barriers to to getting outside. And and um, and I definitely welcome these uh, these steps to to change that. Yeah, I think especially for helping people who have a disability, right, to to get out and enjoy some of these trails. So the government talked about that yesterday. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I've got a, well, one of the bike shop owners from across the road to me here in Chilliwack um, suffered a mountain bike injury and, and, and broke his back um, just over a year ago now. And watching, you know, an avid trail user go from being very able to access these spaces to even though he has a sit bike and he's got, um, you know, some awesome equipment at his disposal to go out and, and, and try to continue to use trails in a new way, um, the infrastructure to use his bike on is not there, right? So this, this type of trail is known as like a white trail. Um, you know, we often know the green, blue, and black designations, but white trails basically um, mean that there is all ages, all abilities, adaptability. There's no barriers to entry. There's no step-ups. Um, they're wide. They continue to not just be flat, boring trails, but um, you know, but they are accessible for those maybe in a chair or uh, those who have mobility issues. So really, uh, really exciting new trend. And, and you know, honestly, the mountain bike community is pioneering it, um, and it's a, it's a really welcome change across the board. $3.6 million announced yesterday by the government. Now, that is over three years, though. This is a, a very large provincial park system we have in our province. Will that? How far will that money go in, in making improvements the public will notice and use? I mean, this is the thing, right? I don't want to be the person who always says it's never enough money because, you know, we have a lot of priorities in the province of British Columbia, and, and we got to, you know, put on that hat as well. But you know, this isn't going to go nearly as far as anyone would like. Signage is expensive. Even just changing all the signage at all outhouses to gender neutrality and these types of things, it's a very big bill. But you have to start somewhere. And, you know, and I think, um, you know, the minister's announcement talks about how it's going to be kind of to the close communities first, you know, so you're not going to see as many of these changes in the far reaches of the province and in the, uh, you know, um, in the harder to access places, because obviously those places 
by their nature are lower accessibility already anyway. So we're going to, I think, see some some tangible changes. Um, and I think the, the important piece in all these funding um, you know, announcements and, and new regimes is to really look at it and continue to track, is this money effective? And if it is, then let's continue to go down these roads. But I'm certainly uh, somebody who says that we should, we should try to fund these important initiatives, but we should also do it cautiously so that we're not wasting taxpayer resources as we go along because, you know, $3.6 million or $3.9 million is a lot of money, but, um, you know, we need to make sure we steward that well on the, on the network. Speaking of Sam Waddington, Mount Waddington's Outdoors in Chilliwack about BC's provincial park system, the government announcing measures yesterday to improve accessibility in the parks. I think actually it probably makes a lot of sense that if they're going to do this, you you should make these improvements first at parks that are closest to urban centers, so the most accessible, the most popular parks that are nearby population centers. That, that makes sense to me. Uh, what, what parks... Sam, which parks are the most popular, like the busiest provincial parks? The busiest provincial parks are the ones closest to our urban centers, right? So yeah. we look at, you know, we look at like Porto Cove up the Sea to Sky Corridor out of Metro Vancouver. Um, you know, we look at Golden Ears Park. We look at Cultus yeah. Lake Provincial Park. These types of really easily accessible right off our highway networks and adjacent to the vast, vast majority of British Columbia's um, population center, which is in the lower mainland. There's also the equivalency in the Okanagan. You know, these are kind of our two big um, regions, and this is where the province will focus as well. I mean, we think about somebody with mobility challenges or potentially in a chair. They're likely not in a jacked-up four-wheel drive truck as well, getting to these hard-to-access parks, right? So yeah. we're, we're, we're going to be needing to, uh, um, you know, to, to, to keep an eye on where BC Parks does focus this money, um, but, uh, but yeah, I would assume it would be mostly in the lower mainland, the Sea to Sky Corridor and a bit through the Okanagan, um, as their, uh, their trial locations. And those would be where the busiest parks would, um, you know, would call for that, uh, that type of transition. How are BC parks maintained overall throughout the province in your estimation? This is something we've discussed before. We've got a large park system in the province. There's been lots of parks created over the years, but... You know, I've heard about parks that have been neglected, trails that are not really properly maintained. What are your concerns there? Yeah, we have a, um, we definitely have a deficit um, in this province. Our natural beauty and people's desire to go find it and go seek it, um, certainly especially in the last number of years, has outstripped our ability to fund it and continue to maintain it at an appropriate level, in my opinion. Um, you know, if this were a civic facility, if this were your local skating rink or your local park, um, you'd know whose door to knock on and go, you know, yell at your city councillors and your mayor and tell them that this is a priority for you and to include it in next year's budget. Whereas with the province, the mechanisms move a little slower and it's a little more of a faceless kind of body of government. And so, you know, I think it is incumbent on, on um, people who value these spaces to to articulate that to their elected officials and, and to... You know, take those opportunities wherever they may be, fill out your surveys, do your things, do your part to articulate how valuable this is to you. Because um, right now, British Columbia's park system is uh, more loved by its public than it is by its uh, by its trail maintenance, um, you know, mandates and and uh, and by its funding stream. So um, I think we're moving in some ways in the wrong direction in terms of uh, maintenance. We're seeing less parks personnel 
per user on the trail, I would assume, than ever before, um, certainly than ever uh, than we've seen in the last couple of decades. Um, and that's and that's by nature of the fact that more people are using them. So so the trends for using is good. The, tr- the trends for maintenance are not as good. Um, and so we want to make sure we get ahead of that curve so we don't deplete these assets and, and have a bunch of latent work to do down the road here. Yeah. How about the uh, the campsite reservation system? I mean, this has been a, a gong show in the past. People have had difficulty reserving a campsite online. The government has made a, a couple of attempts here to improve the online system. You can book a campsite now four months in advance. So, I mean, we're in the we're right in prime time here right now to book a, a summer campsite. Correct? Exactly. Yep. It's yeah. always easy to focus on the launch of those systems, but if you're looking out into uh, July and August, um, yeah. you know you should have your eyes on the booking system now. And you know i I haven't in, I haven't loved every single you know quote unquote improvement. And there's been some hiccups with our booking system. And you and I have been watching that closely. But I'd like to back up you know ten years and say, are we in a better place now than we were then? And I think the answer is yes. Um, you know I think British Columbians have used their voice to say this is absurd. Websites can't crash. We can't have this kind of a system. You know, photos on the site um, of BC Park's booking site are better. You now know what you're booking. The maps are better. Um, the rolling reservation system is clearer and more, you know, understandable. We've, we've got um, some of the scalping, t- uh, ticket scalping or campsite scalping issues out of the way. You know, we, we have made some big strides forward as a province. And I guess yeah. my encouragement would simply be that we continue to do that. There's tons of work left to do. And, um, I mean, this should be one of our most valued provincial assets, and let's continue to advocate for it and maintain it properly. Yeah, no, I'm glad to hear you say that, that it, it sounds like it has improved. Like, if someone was looking to book a campsite in, you know, primo time here, talking July, August, get out camping this summer, what would be your recommendation right now, in order to get, you know, make sure you get the site that you want, you've got to, you got to stay frosty here and make sure you're in front of your computer terminal with your credit card in your hand on the date that you need to be doing that, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah, and yeah. you can also check, uh, you know, these sound like very, you know, sophisticated techniques, but they're not too difficult. Check your upload speed. You can just Google what that is. Um, so that you know from when you click your mouse to when they register that you clicked your mouse, what's that delay? Because in some rural parts of our province, that's going to be multiple seconds, and that could be the booking difference between you getting your site or not. But my other encouragement would be British Columbia Parks, I mean, they are our crown jewel, but right now in the province of British Columbia, we have two provincially run campground systems. There is also the Ministry of Rec Sites and Trails, um, network of campgrounds and recreation sites, and they have an entire network of sites that you should take a look at if you haven't explored them. They're often right down the road from your uh, provincial park. They're in the same regions. They're accessing the same networks. Um, they're normally maintained and sort of designed to a slightly more, I would call, rustic standard. Um, yeah. But um, but they're an awesome, awesome um, alternative to a VC park if your park is booked or if you just want to explore something new. So if your park is booked and you can't get in, you've got a full second option. Don't, don't give up there. 
We were talking about getting outside and enjoying the natural beauty of BC with my guest Sam Waddington, Mount Waddington's Outdoors in Chilliwack. If you had any trouble booking a campsite in BC's parks, please let me know. What is your favorite park? 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Let's go to your calls. Joni in White Rock. Hi, Joni. Hi. Could Sam re- please repeat the name of the alternative, uh, more rustic um, system somewhat, yeah, the alternative to BC Parks? I didn't catch the name of that. Yeah, that's a really good question. Sam, how does that work now? Yeah, so uh, thanks, Joni. Um, the, uh, the, it's, it's actually now a, a, it was a separate ministry under the Ministry of Forests, but it's a, it's a department called Recreation Sites and Trails British Columbia. So if you just Google that, you will get the Rec Sites and Trails BC um, uh, website that will pop up, and you'll see recreation sites. So that's where you're going to find popular trails that are not within parks but are in forestry land. You'll find information about those trailheads. But you'll also find camping. And there is a map function that you can use, and you can see where the campsites are. And often they're up forestry roads, so keep in mind some of them are hard to access, um, yeah. but some of them are not. And they're, they're right near town, and they're great options. Yeah, what's in, what's that website again to check that out? It's Rec Sites and Trails BC. Rec Sites and Trails BC. Yeah, I love it. That is a great, great option for people to check out for sure. Like, do you typically, would you need a four-wheel drive truck, though, to get up some of these roads? No, not necessarily. Okay. So lots of them are, you know, accessed off of pavement or accessed off of what we call mainline forestry roads. So they're gravel, but they're flat and they're, they're two-wheel drive. Some of them, though, are four-wheel drive access, but the website will tell you that. Thank you, Joni, for the call. I hope that helps you. we got Merlin on the line calling from Clearwater. Is this the mayor? This is the mayor, and this okay. is the Worked more than 35 years in B.C. parks. My, right. my, my grand tip, obviously, Wells, Gray, and Myrtle Lake, uh, especially if you're a canoeist, is the fabulous. But my big tip is September. Come in September. The bugs are gone. The beaches are better uh, and bigger. Uh, and usually even parks that are on the map that say there are no reservations or seem to be closed are open to the public and accessible. Um, I used to run Mahood, which has a beautiful beach, great fishing, uh, trout up to like 17, 18 pounds. Um, in September, it's still open, accessible. The boat latch is accessible. Tons of room, no reservations, and it actually closes early, like as far as paying fees. You can stay there after the season has ended for free. What's the name of that park again? It's uh, it's Mahood. It's about uh, uh-huh. 115 or so kilometers uh, east of 100 Mile House is the easiest access. It's not the easiest one to get to, but, you know, 17-pound Lakers can be pulled out of it on a regular basis. And I think there's like five types Whoa. of fish in it. Okay, so, you, sold, you sold me at 17-pound trout. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and Myrtle Lake for canoeing. Everybody yeah. knows the Bowron Circle. But yeah. Myrtle Lake in Wellsway Park is stunning. 111 kilometers of yellow sand beaches and some of the best views and hikes that you can see in the province. And 11-pound rainbow trout. Oh, my so, God. Okay. So so these are places to check out. But July and August Thank you, Mayor. are always busy. Okay. Thank you, Mayor. I appreciate it. That's Mayor Merlin Blockwell calling in from Clearwater. Sam, thanks for coming on today. Absolutely, absolutely. Have a great one, everyone. Enjoy Thank you. Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? 
it's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line, it's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI, it's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. All right, let's talk about this tough rental market now. Finding a decent, affordable place to rent becoming more difficult. I've got Robert Patterson standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to this report from Global News. Amy Libby and her husband spend about $2,300 a month on rent for their 1,200-square-foot townhouse in Abbotsford. It's a lot of money for the family of four. We were lucky and found our home on a community page, um, but it was still $400 over what we were previously paying, even just from a year ago. Amy's situation is not uncommon. Rents in Metro Vancouver continue to soar. A report for Rentals.ca shows Vancouver has the priciest rentals in the country. A one-bedroom apartment has an average monthly rent of $2,167, up 13% over the previous year. We can make our rent payments, we can pay our bills, but that's it. Like, we don't go out to eat, our daughters aren't in any extracurricular activities. We don't really do anything, (laughs) as sad as that sounds, we just can't afford to. Okay, tough times for renters for sure. Rents are up, vacancies are down, the population is increasing, competition for places getting fierce. Rental prices have gone even higher since that global news report we just played. Check out these numbers now. This is from live.rent in Vancouver. Average price of a one-bedroom apartment, $2,587. A three-bedroom apartment, $3,552 a month. How can anyone afford these rents? Let's discuss now with my guest, Robert Patterson, rental rights lawyer. He's with the Tenant Resource and Advisory Center. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Robert, thanks for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, Robert, when we talk about the rents being so high, vacancy so low, let's start with the vacancy rate right, right now. What is it? Very low, correct? Yeah, it's absolutely crushing. There's very few sort of available units on the market, and generally speaking, the ones that are available are completely unaffordable. Uh, recent data from the CMHC shows that uh, empty units listed for rent are rent for about 43% more than currently occupied units. Wow, and the population is increasing. I mean, there's more and more people coming to the city, so the competition to find a decent, affordable place to rent is also getting tougher, too. What, like, what are you hearing from people when they're out there trying to find a place? I mean, we definitely hear from tenants who have great difficulty in finding places to rent, um, anything that's affordable. We also hear from a lot of tenants who are terrified about losing their housing. You know, when you know, losing your housing to an, you know, an eviction, which may not be entirely justified, uh, with the result of that is that you have to find a new unit in your community. When rents are this much higher for vacant units, um, it means that people usually, when they're looking at the end of a tenancy, are looking at displacement from their community. They're looking at moving one, two, three cities away uh, and being separated from the, those communities and still probably having to pay even more rent than they were paying to begin with. Um, so it makes people very feel for, for fearful for their housing. And I think it means, you know, it identifies some pretty significant gaps in you know, what we've done to try and regulate and protect the market. When you take a look at this market right now, like I'm looking at some news stories online about some of the places that are for rent in Vancouver right now, and some of them just, <laughs> just they're almost comical in a way. Like I'm looking at one, a, a tiny 
solarium for rent, $1,000 a month, downtown Vancouver. You're certainly in prime location with a nice view, but I'm looking at the photos online. It's literally like a tiny little sunroom with a bed in it. It looks like there's almost no room to, to move around. Another one I'm looking at, a, a room for rent, part of a suite. The door is basically a curtain, so you're paying for a small part of a part of a small condo with a pull-out bed with a curtain to separate yourself from the rest of the condo. That's like a thousand bucks a month too. Are you seeing stuff like that, like little teeny tiny places for rent? Absolutely, and to be honest, that's just sort of continuing a pattern we've been seeing for years. I mean, I remember years ago seeing, speaking to a tenant who was living in a condo in Vancouver where the landlord was renting out uh, the walk-in closet as a uh, <laughs> separate room um, where the person renting it could only sleep sleeping corner to corner uh, lying down on the oh. floor. So I think what we're seeing, you know, there's two sides to this. On the one hand, there are you know unscrupulous landlords who are just trying to maximize every dollar they can get out of their property and doing that themselves. On the other hand, I think a lot of these situations too are you'll see where tenants will are forced into unaffordable tenancies because there's nothing else out there. And the only way they can try and pay the rent is to try and split up the unit uh, and get people living in there with them. One of the other sort of drawbacks to these kind of living situations, too, is that a lot of our tenancy rights and our human rights legislation don't always apply to those situations where people are sharing space with, you know, a person who might be the tenant or sharing space with the owner of the property as they, as they live there. So we, we're creating, uh, through our legislation, kind of a subclass of tenants who have even fewer rights than those who have the ability to rent a unit themselves. Speaking of Robert Patterson, Tenant Resource and Advisory Center, talking about the, the bleak picture for rentals right now. Rents are sky high, vacancy rate is very low, and it looks like it's going to get worse before it gets better. Is, is that your outlook? I mean, when you take a look at the number of people that are, uh, the population growth in our city, the immigration rates that have been approved by the federal government, there are going to be more and more people looking for decent, affordable places to rent. And it doesn't seem like the construction of new purpose-built rental is is managing to keep up. Yeah, I mean, Mike, I'm not an economist, so I'm not sure I can go look at the real big picture there. But what I can say is, you know, from my perspective, there are a number of gaps in our protections for tenants that are leading to more and more people getting uh, gouged on rent. Um, you know, for example, uh, if we look at sort of our strategy for adding rental units to cities in the lower mainland, the current strategies aren't working. They are primarily adding luxury rate rentals that no one can afford. Putting a $3,000 a month one bedroom on the market doesn't free up a cheaper one bedroom because the person paying affordable rent isn't going to want to move and pay a, a gouging rate. Um, right. So those mar- mar- units coming on the market aren't helping. Um, I think, you know, if, you, if we look at the last time we had anything close to rent a healthy housing market, it was back at a time when we had significant public investment in housing, um, where government was taking not just taking steps to try and entice or bribe developers to build housing so that they can make a profit, but actually direct participation through creation of public and social housing and participation in things like non-market housing. You know, there are a lot of people, I think, that look to cooperative housing in Vancouver uh, and other parts of Lower Mainland, but especially Vancouver, as this sort of shining light on a hill. Here's uh, how good housing can be. Those co-op, but we haven't had a new co-op created in Vancouver for, I think, for decades because the funding for it has dried up. Well, it's very interesting what you say about co-ops because I know some people who live in co-ops and they love it and they are not going anywhere. Like once they are in that co-op, I 
doubt there's a whole lot of turnover because people are very happy with the situation they have if they can get into one of these co-ops. And that's interesting to hear that we haven't built any any new ones. Why why do you think that is? Is that just a, that's a lack of you talked a little bit about the lack of funding there? Yeah, I'm, to my to my knowledge, and again, I'm not an expert on the history of co-op, yeah. but there was a time when there was significantly more public investment in co-ops. Um, active participation by the federal government and the CMHC in helping to, you know, get the financing for co-ops to buy the land or, or to, to lease the land to them to build housing on. Um, and that effectively has just stopped. We've, uh, you know, in general, sort of since the 90s, the move uh, has been to get out of the housing game, for, for the public housing game, just to sort of let the market uh, have, have its way. And, I mean, I think since then you can just see there's been a trend uh, of the market getting worse and worse and worse for renters. And, and let's face it, better for landlords, right? Like the incredible rents that are being charged by, uh, to tenants when they have to find new units, that's money that's going into a landlord's pocket instead of into, you know, the, the local economy. Well, that person, like you say, who can't spend their disposable income on anything but rent, suddenly, you know, that's all that economic activity they could be generating is all just going to right. you know, service, service a mortgage or going into the pockets of a real estate investment trust that may not even pay any taxes. Well, I, I know there's I'm almost, I'm certain there are landlords listening to this right now, or maybe kind of gritting their teeth because they're looking at that, that annual limit for rent increases in British Columbia this year, which once again is capped by the provincial government. So just 2% maximum rent hike in 2023 at a time when inflation is galloping ahead at what triple that or more. So I've talked to lots of landlords saying, hang on, how can we pay for our input costs? There's no cap on that. We got to pay more for repairs and property taxes, and and yet we were capped on the rent hikes. I'm gonna, I'm just going to get out of the this whole business. I'm going to stop renting my basement suite out, for example. I've heard that from people. I'm sure you've heard that too. Like, what do you say to that? Yeah, I mean, I think I do have for sure a lot of sympathy for small landlords, especially those you know who may have you know had to buy into a hot property market to have a you know trying getting housing stability, and then because of you know in order to service the mortgage, have to rent out a secondary suite. Um, you know, I I absolutely have a ton of sympathy for those landlords, and I think there should be you know important supports that are offered to them. Um, I think honestly, at the end of the day, when you're sort of regulating all housing together, um, you know, we have to set rules for the big boys and all also for these small individual landlords. And, you know, they are such different beasts. You know, a real estate investment trust that's going across the country and buying up hundreds, thousands of rental units with an eye to maximizing the return on investment, trying to flip over units, trying to evict tenants any way they can to maximize their, their, their profit. Like, we need a set of rules for them. Uh, but unfortunately, those rules also have to apply to other landlords. Um, I think, you know, there are, the province has made some, some moves to help landlords cover those costs. So, for example, a landlord can apply for an additional rent increase uh, if they've uh, completed sort of capital expenditures on their property, and any landlord can apply for that. Any kind of landlord can apply. Um, and that right. can be, that's on top of the allowable annual increase. Um, but I think also, if we think in general, you know, what have we done since the 90s? We've kind of downloaded onto individual people the responsibility for housing people in our society. Um, we haven't sort of just realized that, you know, there is, I think, a greater collective responsibility to maintain a healthy housing market, that it's honestly in everyone's best interest, except perhaps for some property speculators, for there to be you know, people to have access to affordable, accessible, and safe housing. Um, and I think the current system just isn't delivering that, and it's not working for many people other than those uh, profit-seeking renters, uh, landlords out there. It's definitely a difficult situation for sure. Robert, thank you very much for your time today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.